0: Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. I'm Michael Finan, Marketing Assistant with Harper Academic. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader a behind the scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well loved favorites to up and coming debut writers about their books. academic calling Kristen Green. In the wake of the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education decision, one county of Virginia decided not to cooperate. Rather than desegregate their schools, Prince Edward County shut down the public schools. White community leaders quickly established a private academy for their children to attend, while black students in the county were left with no options to continue their education without uprooting their lives. The schools remained closed for five years. Kristen Green, author of Something Must Be Done About Prince Edward County, which is now available in paperback, is the perfect person to tell this story. Besides the investigative journalism she applies diligently, Kristen also brings a personal connection. Her grandfather was one of those white community leaders instrumental in the very conflict at the heart of her book. So we are here today with Kristen Green, author of Something Must Be Done About Prince Edward County. And Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having
0: me. Not a problem. Uh, So I wanted to start with um, talking about the story itself and how you started to tell that in the first place. Um, So obviously this was a story that uh, affects you in a personal way because of where you grew up and your family. Uh, So what made you decide to go back to your hometown to tell this story in the first place? And what was it like for you to sort of realize that this story, something that's been a part of your life... Was actually a story with national significance.
1: So the gem of the idea for something must be done about Prince Edward County is really my life. You know, I grew up in Prince Edward County, Virginia, in in Farmville, Virginia, which is the um, is a town is a town center for the county. Um, and so, really, you know, the first twenty years of my life or sort of the basis for the book. Um, I left. Farmville to go to college, and then after college I became a reporter, and I moved to the west coast to work for newspapers out there. Um, And so I became a more curious person um, and a a person more interested in learning about the the history of my hometown, which I really didn't know as a child. I was not taught what had gone down um, in Prince Edward County before I was born. Um, And then I met my future husband, who's a multiracial man while I was living in California. Um, and became even more interested um, in the history of my hometown. I think because I knew I I wanted to marry him, and I knew that um, the story of what happened in my hometown would become part of our family story. Um, So I read a Washington Post article while I was working as a newspaper reporter out in San Diego that for the first time sort of introduced me to the complexity of what had happened in Prince Edward County. I had never realized that um, Prince Edward County had been part of the Brown Board of Education decision, um, you know, I really only knew that I had attended a segregation academy, and I didn't even really know, what, you know, why it had been uh, formed. So the, reading that sort of in-depth piece in the Washington Post um, raised my interest, and I thought, you know, this would be a good book. If, um, you know, if no one's written one. And that yeah, was like 15 years ago at this point. Um, so that was sort of the, the gem of the idea. Um, so I started doing reading on it. And when my husband and I moved, Jason and I got married, um, and we moved to Massachusetts, then I finally had the chance to be much closer to Virginia and decided that I would uh, begin to do some of the research um, to possibly write a book. You know, at that time, I didn't realize really that I would be part of the book. You know, the, my vision wasn't that it would be. Uh, part of memoir. I just thought it'd be really great to have someone with a um, journalist sensibility, and also the both the perspective of an insider and someone who has left town, who has a perspective of an outsider too. To have both of those perspectives kind of com- combined, and and to be able to also use my um, sort of the journalistic style, where I really like to um, do narrative writing um, to tell the stories of. The students who had been denied an education. So, um, you know, the the storyline that that began to kind of unveil itself to me as I did more reading was that in 1951, uh, black students at the high school in Farmville, Virginia had walked out to protest the conditions of their high school. Um, The white high school, just a few blocks away, was much larger, so it could Handle a much larger student body and it had many facilities that the black high school didn't have. And so Barbara Johns, a 16 year old girl, led a walk out there to protest the conditions, which attracted the attention of the NAACP uh, attorneys in Richmond, Virginia, who at first didn't want to take on the case, but eventually agreed to um, on the terms that instead of seeking equal facilities, that the students and their parents would seek integration. Um, and when they agreed to do that, a case was filed and that became one of five lawsuits that was eventually folded into Brown v. Board of Education. So then, fast forward to the um, Brown decision in 1954. Um, white leaders in Prince Eric County reacted with dismay to that decision, as did many other Virginia leaders. Um, and, you know, within months of that decision, the Varnville Herald, the town newspaper, was suggesting that, you know, if, if push came to shove, that instead of integrating, uh, Prince Edward County should just consider closing its schools um, and also a local group um, of leaders white leaders got together and formed the defenders of state sovereignty and individual liberty sort of a local chapter of that group that that called for the same thing um, and so when I started reading some of those details about what happened I you know that, that it was actually part of Brownie board and then this local reaction I realized that there was um national significance. And then what came next was, you know, actually following up on this threat that, that some local leaders had lobbied in, in, um, in 1954, you know, it, it took the courts five years to actually require Prince Edward County to um, desegregate schools because the way the Brown decision worked, it really fell on the backs of black families uh, like parents to file suits against individual schools or school districts to require them to desegregate and um, that finally happened in Prince Edward County in 1959 and when that happened those white leaders followed through with their threats and they um, voted not to fund the schools essentially closing all public schools there of course when they closed the schools nobody had any idea how long they would be closed but white leaders were prepared to open um, schools for their children there it was an academy that they were able to open classrooms in um, churches and social clubs you know, even an old telephone building became schools for their children so their their kids never went a day without education but black children were shut out of school and and they ended up being the only community in the nation to close their schools for five years rather than desegregate and that little um, you know just that little nugget of information made me realize wow we really have a story here um, and then and then the really unique stories of the children, of what happened to them when the schools were closed, I felt was so compelling. Um, and of course, many of them, you know, this wasn't that long ago, many of them are still alive. Um, and so they were able to tell me their stories firsthand about what happened to their lives, the ways that their lives were upended and changed um, when the schools closed. Um, and I also thought as a journalist, it would be really cool to be able to write about the many ways that that decision, you know, that really tragic decision, has affected the town over the years and still affects it today, um, and so that was part of what I wanted to accomplish too. Um, so really, a lot of things going on there. But, <laughs> but I think what, what what you know attracted me to the story was that it really—I was a journalist telling other people's stories every day, but here the most interesting story, really, of my life um, was my hometown story, and I couldn't really even just you know. T- Explain it to you at that time when I started work on it. I really didn't know what had what had happened in my town before I was born, um, and so I thought, you know, this is really important, and um, I think it has national significance, and no one has given it has given it the kind of attention that I want to.
0: Absolutely, no. It's it's such a fascinating yet almost hidden chapter in um, our history in terms of the civil rights movement. Um, so you had mentioned that. Uh, at first, for you, this was purely journalistic, and you weren't really planning on this personal aspect. But I guess along the way, when you were digging into this, you kind of realized that it had a lot more to do with your family's history than you thought.
1: Yeah, I mean, so when i when I began work on the book, um, you know, just a couple of years into into the work, I realized that, my grandfather had been one of the members of that group I I mentioned, the Defenders of State Sovereignty and Individual Liberties. He was, he was a founding member of that group and an officer of that group. Um, and I think that's when the story really changed direction for me because that meant that I, I could no longer simply blame my town for making this tragic decision but that my family was also at fault. Um, So it became even more personal to me. I mean, I had grown up knowing that my grandfather was a member of the board um, of the Segregation Academy that I attended, known then as Prince Edward Academy. Um, But that was so normalized to me because so many of the students that I went to school with, I mean, when I attended the Segregation Academy, um, it, it was still all white until 1986 when I was entering eighth grade. So um, so having my grandfather be a board member there and be really involved in founding the school was really normal because a lot of the kids I went to school with you know, were kind of in kind of the same boat. Um, but I think learning that he was one of the defenders was, was really different for me. I couldn't view that in the same way. Um, and so I started to think about the history in a really different way. And so part of you know, the work of writing the book was um, kind of processing. What I learned about my family's role in it, and sort of coming to terms with the history. Um, so, like one of the main narrative threads of the book became this journey to understand what happened in my hometown before I was born, and um, and kind of process it and, and come to terms with it. Um, so it really became you know sort of a driving uh, philosophy of the
0: book, I guess. Yeah, and, and I mean, I feel like it really just it fills out this story so much. Um, and so you said that. I'm sorry.
1: Well, I just think that that enables a lot of people to connect with the history that might not have otherwise. There were so many people, particularly in Virginia who read the book, who told me that, that they had had similar experiences or that they had had, um, you know, that they had had feelings about something about their own school that they attended that, that they felt just wasn't quite right, but they never knew what it was. And so I think a lot of us attended schools. You know, if they weren't segregation academies like Prince Art Academy, they had had some some you know um, relationship to desegregation, and that and a lot of us weren't informed in sort of what that relationship was, and so we always knew something wasn't quite right, but but couldn't fit, put our finger on it because it wasn't a history that was taught. So I think it it enabled a lot of people to connect to the history that um you know that might not have otherwise done so.
0: And I mean, it just shows that there are ways that we are really more connected to it than you might originally think. Mm Mm-hmm. It's true. So then you had also said that a lot of these students uh, who were affected by this are still alive today and that you interviewed them. Um, What was that like, Um, you know, finding these students, talking to them about their experiences, sort of figuring out, you know, how it affected them them, and, you know, ways that it's still affecting them to this day? Oh, that
1: was amazing. Like. Having the chance to talk with them about their experiences was you know, one of the greatest moments of my life. I'm a huge honor. Um, you know, it really wasn't difficult to find people who had been affected by the school closures once I started spending a lot of time in Prince Edward County because so many students were affected. I mean, we're talking thousands. Like that first year is 1700. So, you know, by the time uh, the schools reopened, it was well over 3,000 students who had been affected by the school closures. Um, But, you know, what I was trying to do was interview enough people that I really felt like I had uh, a good grasp of all the various experiences. Um, And, you know, part of me wanted to just like, you know, string together all of their stories, have a book of their stories because they were really so incredible. Um, Mm -hmm. So, trying to choose which one to include and which one not to was, was incredibly difficult, um, but I, you know, I went into it knowing that there was like several different paths that students took, um, but there were definitely more paths than I had ever imagined, um, I mean, like for example, one of the students I love talking with that I feature in the book, Charlie Taylor, he was um, a rising senior when the schools closed, and he was a star athlete and a student leader. And he was, like, so excited for his senior year because he was going to be, like, you know, he was the man. Um, and to have that sort of ripped away from him, he ended up going to um, a college just over the North Carolina line, Kitchell College, um, and about 60 students from Prince Edward County went there and, and, you know, either did their sophomore, junior, or senior years there. Um, and, I mean, he did have a good experience there because he was able to go with other students, but, like, he, he really just wanted to be back at Moton High School, finishing his, his, you know, year there and be with his parents. Um, you know, he, would, he told stories about walking this road between the gym and his dorm and just praying every day that it would get better. You know, he wasn't, he was not able to play sports at because it was a college and they were just really taking in these high school kids and so he missed that that big part of his life or he was an athlete that was like sort of cut out of his life Um, and that was one of the things he talked about. You know, there were other people who described like trying to go to high school in in Philadelphia, for example, and being sent home because when they realized that that he was from Prince Edward County, he... um, you know, he was going to be charged tuition, and he didn't have money to pay for that. And then, either one of those these people I'm talking about, Doug Vaughn, he ended up you know moving to New Jersey with his brother and renting a room and, and working odd jobs, trying to make a go of it up there. And he would never return to being a student, um, you know, a high school student again. Um, and then there's families like uh, Dorothy Lockwood who walked to these training centers that were set up in the basements of black churches. They were not designed as schools because that would have gone against what the NAACP was trying to accomplish, but but there was a desire to keep black students engaged, Um, and so volunteer teachers would, would run these training centers a few hours every day. Um, and Dorothy had walked three miles each way to get to this training center, which really wasn't as good as the school she had attended. She was a very good student, and her father had vowed from the time the school closed that she would attend school again. Um, and after two years of watching her walk to these training centers and and not seeing any sign that the, the Prince Edward County Public Schools were about to reopen, he decided to rent a house in a neighboring county, um, where he had worked on the railroad with the help of some of his white peers at the railroad. And this house was a real rundown shack. Um, and he set about making it look habitable. He you know, cleaned up the front yard and replaced broken panes in his wife so these beautiful burgundy curtains to hang in the front windows to make it appear that they lived there. And Dorothy didn't realize that they weren't actually gonna live there until the school year began. And he he told her that he was gonna drop Dorothy and her brother there every day before school and that they were not to enter the house. Not until they heard the big bus rumbling down the county roads, and only then were they to enter through the back of the house, walk through the house, walk out the front door, down the steps, through the yard, and up the steps of that big yellow bus. And they were never to tell anyone that they didn't live there, because if they did, their education was at stake. Well, I love that story. (laughs) It's so so funny. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I thought it was was so funny that that he said that, um, you know, within, you know, a few weeks, 21 kids were getting on the, the bus there. <laughs> <laughs> the, the driver joked that, that they couldn't all be siblings. Um, and the kids just, you know, just didn't respond. They knew that their education was at stake. Um, but there were so many stories like that about the things that black parents were willing to sacrifice to make sure that their kids could get an education during this time. You know, it really not much information about what would happen with Prince Edward County Public Schools. Um, and a lot of these stories that they told me, um, they hadn't even shared with each other, with their with their own relatives, their siblings. Um, I guess this was just such a painful part of their history that it, the feelings were still so raw that many didn't want to, you know, revisit this. Um, and so they hadn't even sat down to talk with each other about where each of them went and um You know what happened during those years it was just it's just still too painful, so it was a huge honor to to be able to to tell some of their stories and really to to try to tell um, stories that were representative of what um, this larger group had gone
0: through yeah because, I mean really there are so many um fascinating stories about that um that's what which what part of what I think makes this book so great um Obviously this history is so complex there's so much to it but how do you think um, a lot of this sort of resonates today um, why t- why tell this story now?
1: Well I mean for me I just um, started working on it you know and, and it took me quite a bit of time to, mm-hmm. to accomplish it um, so it was really just a matter of when I could get it done it was, it's kind of a coincidence that it comes out at a time when I feel like stories like this are really needed, um, I mean, I think that it is a great example of some of the hidden histories um, in our in Virginia, for sure, in the South, and in our country. Um, and I think it's, it's another example of how, you know, we're really often learning in authentic history. You know, um, we're taught one thing, but the truth is really something else, you know. This is, um, this is not the, the story that I you know, was taught as a, a kid about what happened in my hometown. You know, I was told a really watered down version of this that was ina- inaccurate. And it makes me wonder how many of the histories that we've been taught, um, you know, are similar. I mean, we learned, I learned last year working, you know, on research after the book that slavery is, you know, that some students in Texas public schools are, you know, that some of the textbooks are printed up referring to slaves as workers. Um, so I think there's numerous examples of, of how history isn't being taught accurately. Um, you know, And the other thing I think about is, is just what's going on in our country right now. Um, you know, I, when I'm talking to college students and high school students, you know, I wonder what mistakes we are making today that people will look back on at 50 or 60 years and shake their heads. Um, I mean, we know for sure that public schools now are as segregated as they were 40 years ago when brown was the brown decision was finally fully implemented you know that the progress that it took so long to make after the brown decision is fading because judges have um released school districts from court enforced integration and you know i mean all you have to do is turn on the news it's hard to miss you know, stories about the killing of unarmed black children, black women, black men, many of them by police. Um, and we, we all know the details of the murder of nine blacks worshiping peacefully at a Charleston Church by a racist white man in 2015. Um, you know, some other things that I think about are the, the loss of hard-won voting rights, which disproportionately affects people of color. Um, I think a lot about the school to prison pipeline and how we've hardly begun our work to dismantle that, um, to prevent black men from living, which prevents black men from leading full and good lives. Um, and of course, you know the the 2016 presidential election season was particularly vicious, with calls to exclude the other and build walls. Um, and I think there's a real danger. You know, I, I think often about that there, there's a real danger of something like what happened in Prince Edward happening again, where someone could, could close schools to deny half the children of a, of a county an education because of the color of their skin. I mean, I think it's really important to share these stories that something like that can never happen again. But that's what I think about when I'm, you know, when I'm talking to to our the next generation, our, our college and high school and middle school students, I'm, I'm trying to connect this history to to what they know is going on right now in this country and in the world.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you know, like they say, how it's so important to, you know, if you don't learn history, you're doomed to repeat it. And I think this story on what's going on now is a prime example of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Kristen, I have one more question for you. Um, it's a question that we like to ask all of our guests. Uh, okay. Since... This podcast is primarily going to be for teachers, professors, et cetera. Who was your favorite teacher?
1: Oh, um, I have to say it was Steve Watkins, who was the professor um, who introduced me to journalism. I had a space for one extra class my freshman year of college at the University of Mary Washington, in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and i thought someone told me in high school that that i was a good writer (laughs) so i i walked into this journalism class and i remembered him him coming in he was dressed in jeans and a hawaiian shirt and had kind of a ratty kind of mustache he maybe even had flip-flops on (laughs) who is this guy (laughs) And he came in and tried to figure out who you know who was um enrolled in the class, and who wasn't? There was way too many people in the room, and he basically dismissed everybody that that wasn't either an English major and an upperclassman because he just didn't have room in the class. He said, the rest of you, you know, you can stay or go, but you're not getting in the class. And something about um, the way he talked about writing, about being a reporter, about questioning authority, um, really spoke to this, you know, naive, I think I was 17 years old when I started college, so this 17-year-old from, you know, Farmville, Virginia that didn't couldn't even tell you the story of what happened in the hotel, it really spoke to me, and for whatever reason, I stayed in the chair that day and, and listened to the rest of his class, even though he told me I wasn't going to go in, um, and then after class, I talked my way, I somehow talked my way into the class, and, and that decision that day um to, to follow Steve Watkins has changed the trajectory of my life um, and influenced me greatly. And so I will always be so grateful to, to him for um, the way he mentored me and continues to mentor me.
0: That's fantastic. Um, well, thank you so much for a great chat.
1: I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on.
0: No problem. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.